This morning, I am reading from Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. That's the entire chapter. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight? The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Alice. Well, today is the 
beginning of the end. It's kind of an ominous way to start a sermon, isn't it? (laughs) By that, I just mean that it's the beginning of the end of the story of Abraham and Sarah that we've been going through. This morning, we begin the transition to the end of the narrative arc for Abraham's life with the death of, of Sarah. I want to do something to start that's totally uh, uncharacteristic, a little out of the ordinary. Uh, humor me by playing along. If you are currently married or uh, were and are maybe widowed or widower, uh, do me a favor, and even if your spouse is here or not today, do me a favor, stand up, would you? Thank you for humoring me. So you're not alone. There's a few people in this room. Uh, so thanks for standing up. Um, so I just wanted to kind of see this morning who has either been married the long, is married the longest, or been if you're a widow or widower. I'm kind of just curious. So if you've been married for five or less years, go ahead and sit down. <laughs> kind of. If you don't know Jim, we're in trouble. <laughs> How about, oh, let's do eight or less years. Okay. Ten or less. Viewings just hit 10 this weekend. <laughs> yeah. How about 15 or less? Oh, we're getting up there now. 20 or less? How about, we'll go 25, we'll go 5, 10, 15, 20, 20, 25 or less? How about 30 or less? Okay, that took a number out. 35 or less? 40 or less? That took a few there. 45 or less? This is a big one now. 50 or less? We've got just a few. A couple here, a couple ladies here. How about 52 years or less? 53? 54? Okay, we just have one left standing. What, what, tell us your name again. Oh, two. Where are we at? 55? 60, what are you at? Wow. Thank you, ladies. You guys can take a seat. 66 years and 60. Thanks for playing along, everybody. Um, well, when Sarah passed away, when Sarah died... Abraham and Sarah had been married for over 100 years. 100 years. I mean, with 66 back there, you still had 44 to go. A lot. A lot of years. Or 34, I guess is the right. 110. It's incredible, isn't it, though, to think of those terms in decades. Decades of of, of marriage. And she had been a faithful wife, faithful to Abraham and faithful to God, even in the midst of her own sins as well, which we went through some of those. Think of the faithfulness to get up and leave your home and family, to travel with your husband to a destination you didn't know. Think of the faithfulness during the battle when the kings, when Abraham rescued Lot and he battled with those kings. Think of the faithfulness as she stood by her husband with the covenant promises that were made. Promises that she would play an integral role role in, in fact, 50% of the role, right? With the child. 
Think of the faithfulness through the sacrifice of the Isaac incident we went through a couple weeks ago. Now, of course, she wasn't without her own failures. We've talked about some of those, encouraging Abraham to sleep with Hagar, her maid, laughing at the promises of God and unbelief. Maybe you remember that moment. She's a real woman who had real struggles of faith like Abraham, and yet she remained ultimately faithful, becoming the mother of laughter, giving birth to the, the, the promise of a Messiah to come. If Abraham's the father of faith we've been talking about in this series, she is the mother of faith. Isaiah speaks kindly of her. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. And so we pick up our story today, her death. But something's clear here that Moses, the writer, wants us to see. The first generation who were given these promises of God is beginning to die without receiving all the promises. Hopefully you've got your outline with you there and your scripture open to this chapter in Genesis 23. As we think about Abraham and Sarah being asked to die without being given all the promises, so too we are all asked to die without having received all of the promises. All of the promises. Now, of course, there will be a number of humanity that are alive when Christ returns, but the vast majority of humanity will have died without having received all of the promises. All of the promises of God. Think about the promises that Abraham and Sarah have been given by God. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. They have one child. No nation. They have one child, as far as we know, and no nation there. But we also see here, they still, they still have no land. To your offspring, I will give this land, he said. Look north, south, east, east, west. I will give you this land. And they've been living now on borrowed land for decades. Now, the death of Sarah is a central theme of this passage here. Her death is mentioned uh, uh, some nine times in this passage. Either her death or, or, or burying my dead. When we lose a loved one, it brings about thoughts of our own mortality. As it would have for Abraham here. And when you add to that the fact that he is realizing too in this moment that he will not live probably to see the promises as well, you can see how this moment is one of great grief for Abraham and his family. And it could have been a crisis of faith, actually, again for him. He must have felt terribly alone to lose his partner of more than 100 years. 100 years. But we see this morning that while he mourns the death of this amazing woman of faith, he also looks past his own death to the future promises of God to be fulfilled, even even as we should. Beyond the grave he looks. And so should we. Why? Because we are sojourners in life, but heirs in death. He chooses to bury her in the middle of, of the promised land that wasn't theirs. Stop for a moment. 
and think. Haven't you come upon those moments in your life, maybe a crisis or unexpected happening, or maybe you feel like you've just blown it and really messed things up and thought, well, what now? What of your promises to me, God? How will you keep them? How will they come true? Look at where I'm at today. The promises of blessing and hope and peace and joy, Lord. How will you work them into this situation? The first thing we need to realize is this. The first thing is this before we get to the promises. Is that the fact that each and every one of us, like Abraham and Sarah, we will all die without receiving all the promises of God in this life. Well, why is that? I think it's actually, it's actually good to have life interrupted in ways that make us think this. As much as we don't like it, to be reminded that this earthly life was never meant to give you everything. It was never meant to be your all. And all God's promises won't come to you in this life, so don't hold on to it like it's all there is. Because it's not. Those 127 years must have flown by. You think, seriously? I think I'm going to think how fast ours go. Our years fly by, don't they? The days might feel slow, but the weeks fly by. Like James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's good at times to be reminded of this. Well, second, it's also good just to be reminded uh, in, in the death of Sarah today, but we actually don't believe it, that death is coming. We sang about it in that song today, There is a Fountain, didn't we? We actually don't believe it, that death is coming. And if we do, let's say, we live as if we don't believe it, and so we live many times with too much hope placed on the promises to come in our lifetime. John Calvin, in his great little book called On the Christian Life, and he was known for so much more than his highlighting of the doctrines of election and predestination, said this. He said, there's nothing we bring to mind and think about less diligently than this truth. What truth? That we're all going to die. He said, for we all make our plans as if we were constructing immortality for ourselves in this world. If we pass by a funeral or walk among graves, well then, because our eyes are confronted with the image of death, we eloquently philosophize on the emptiness of life, like James' verse we read. But our love of wisdom is momentary. It vanishes as soon as we return, turn our backs and, and leave without a trace in our memory, and the notion of our permanence remains firmly impressed on our minds. We believe it, in other words, he's saying, but we don't believe it. <laughs> like we believe our bodies will age and break down, but we don't believe it until it starts happening, right? You don't think it's ever going to happen to you. You're like, it's happening. <laughs> we say it, but we don't believe it. I'm going to die. You are going to die. Sarah died without all the promises. 
it's so valuable to be reminded of this, even as it's hard to say up here in front and to, he- and to listen. Because a lot of our squirming, a lot of our anger and frustrations at the way things are in life many times, it's because we're shocked again into the reality that this world won't deliver all God has promised. And it's shocking when that comes smacking us in the face again through illness or death. or It won't deliver all God's promises and you will die. Now, that doesn't mean we hate this world. That doesn't mean we disown it or turn from it. That doesn't mean it's all bad. In fact, Calvin went on to say in that little book, God, before he openly presents to us our inheritance of eternal glory, that's the promises, he desires to declare himself our Father through smaller proofs. Such proofs are the good gifts he daily bestows on us. So yes, the glorious good gifts of eternal life are coming, but they won't all come in this life, but there are good things in this life he gives you to show, I am your Father, just wait and see what's coming. If I give you good gifts now, why will I not give you everything someday? So much of life is good, isn't it? And beautiful. And there are promises and gifts we do enjoy now, we do get now. They're from a good heavenly Father. But it does mean that if we want to live well in the present, as men and women of faith, as Sarah and Abraham did, and die well, we don't talk about that a lot, what does a good death look like? And die well as they did, we better also look to the promises of the future too. So let's do that for a minute. Not only will you die without all the promises, but the future promises are there. The future promises of God, they give us present hope to live well and to die well. And Abraham does just this in this strange, ancient negotiation for a burial plot for his family. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me in chapter 23. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. There's a few things I want us to highlight in this section on the future promises and how they fuel our present living. The first one, it's this. We see a man's humble initiative to provide for his family. As we heard in these verses, Abraham, he rises up. He gets up, ready for action. He rises up in, in death, in his mourning, in his weeping even. And he is terribly grieved. As a man, a husband, a father, it is his responsibility to initiate. So he rises up, the text says. And even amongst foreigners, he seeks a possession, a property, a place of permanence to bury his dead. His wife, no less. A family plot. We we have those and know what those are. A family plot for his wife is how we could look at it in, in our day. Where at one time, remember now, he had feared foreigners. He had offered up his wife, do you remember, as his sister and put her in great danger. Now he takes initiative and he risks and he speaks up in front of a large people group, the Hittites. 
This is how a man of God acts. A man is to take initiative when it's needed. To start something, to begin something. He stands up, the text says. He rises up. A man's to provide. Secure. To see his responsibilities out well unto the end. But he does so humbly. Do you see that there in the story? Not as an angry authoritarian, not as deserving of something, but humbly acknowledging his place of dependence even. And the custom of the day, he bows before these people that he's seeking help from. The people who own the land. It's not his yet, remember? And he bows before them. So yes, does he initiate as a strong leader? You bet. But he does it appropriately in humility in this moment. Men of Bethany, Abraham is a great model for us here. We're called to initiate, to provide, to lead, to secure, to risk for our families and our church. Our church too. Abraham goes through these elaborate negotiations. You know why? Because he's got elaborate care and love for his bride and family. And as you first we heard this story or read, or as you've, maybe you've read it before, it looks as if the Hittites are being kind of generous, doesn't it? As they go back and forth. No, Abraham, take whatever you want. Take whatever you want of our land. We won't get in front of you burying your dead. He says, no, no, I'll, I'll pay a fair price. No, 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 Abraham, take what you want, whatever you want. Kind of this back and forth, wasn't it? No, you hear me. No, you hear me. No, you hear me. (laughs) Abraham just wanted the cave. Did you see that at the beginning? But Ephraim pushes on him also the field and the trees and all the property surrounding the cave. What's happening here? It looks like they're being really kind. They're actually extorting Abraham. (laughs) I don't know if you caught that. They place and sear. No, 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 no. You can have it. You can have it for free. Look at verse 15 with me. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham should have replied, what is that between you and me? It's a ripoff. <laughs> 400 shekels is way too much money, actually. It's like six and a half pounds of silver. He should have said it's a ripoff because it was. They were extorting him. They were pretending to say we're going to give you something for free, but did you catch it in there? He's like, hey, what's a, a piece of land? Have it for free. It's worth 400 shekels, but have it for free. Did you, did you catch it there? But isn't he kind of a picture of Christ here? Willing to initiate and secure a place for his bride. A leader with the interest of others in mind. Willing to humble himself in this exchange. Like Christ. Like Jesus. He takes the form of a servant bowing in this moment, Abraham does. Willing to pay an exorbitant amount because he loved her exorbitantly. No price is too high for my beautiful bride. The cost of 400 shekels for Jesus' life. 
He's like a Christ here. Paying, serving, loving, initiating, providing, securing all the things Jesus does way better than Abraham for us. But there's more going on here too than a man initiating. The future promises fuel this present living for Abraham and Sarah. Future hopes and promises impact their here and now like they are to for us. Now, for those of you who have grown up local, this might not actually make as much sense to you. Those of you who grew up in Canby or somewhere close around in, in our state, in Oregon, you've lived here all your life. So when you die, you'll probably be buried here, right? This is your home. You've always lived here. But for those of you who have moved away before or moved away from other places that were at one time a, a, a solid, strong home for you, places of birth maybe, maybe where you left family behind to go out and, on some venture, this might resonate a bit more for you. What if you die far away from where you lived in another important part of your life and you're connected to two places? Or what if your spouse was buried in one place and now you go off to another to live with family maybe and you pass away? What do you do? Where does your body finally rest and await the resurrection? It can seem like quite a dilemma for those maybe who have moved around before. Actually, it's more a dilemma, obviously, for the family who will bury you. And here, Abraham, he wants to honor his wife in burial and honor the future promises of God at the same time as he lives in the present. You know, custom for him, uh, what would be customary, maybe his own fear, and, or maybe the desire for an easy route, would have pushed Abraham back to Ur in this moment. Hey, that's our, that's our place of origin. We left family there. Let's go back to Ur. We will go to the homeland, and we'll bury her there. Would have been a lot easier. <laughs> would have probably felt more comfortable. Would have probably made some family happy on the other end. But he chooses in this moment the future, the future promise land and the future promises of God. Abraham, by choosing to bury Sarah in Canaan, is as good as prophesying this is our land. This is our place. God is going to be able to accomplish what he's promised. He's done it before, he'll do it again. He's making a statement. What's he doing? In that moment, he's choosing to live well even by going against what looks like the circumstances are going to work in their favor by believing that God was going to accomplish what he'd promised. It's our, it's our larger point here too. Point two, the future promises of God should help us live well and die well. As we see here with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was able to look beyond the present. Do you do that well? <laughs> do you do that well? Are you able to look beyond your present circumstances? That's hard, isn't it? That's really hard. Abraham did it by faith. He went to live in the land of promise 
as in a foreign land, Hebrews says, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward, there it is, past to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He looked forward, yes, to the promise of the land that he was in, that God would give to future generations, but he also looked forward to an even greater city, a heavenly city, a heavenly home, a future heavenly place. And because of that, the future promise in the here and now, he could bury his wife in a foreign land, claiming it. But isn't this our call too? To live fueled by what is to come. We live by what is to come. To live knowing that certain promises are true. They may not come in this life, right? We're all asked to die without all the promises. But they will come. Philippians says it. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await. That's future, isn't it? Future promise. We await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body. Future, there it is again, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But here's the challenge for us. Just because you believe in heaven, just because you believe you have a citizenship there, as Philippians says, just because you believe he will give you a new body at the resurrection someday doesn't mean that those beliefs are impacting how you live and how you die. You have to put them into action or uh, uh, operationalize, the big word, but put them into operation, into action in your own life. It's like Jonathan Edwards' example of the honey. We've used this before, but I think it's so powerful. I want to use it again. His example of the honey. Do you remember that one? If you'd never, if you'd never tasted honey, just imagine this. Let's say you'd never tasted honey before. And somebody told you it was sweet. I mean, they could explain it to you, and you'd get some understanding of it. They might say, yeah, well, it's a strong flavor. It's a good flavor. You're going to like it. It kind of bites at your taste buds a little bit. It's sweet. I don't know what else to tell you. It's sweet. You've never had it. And you might understand it a little bit. But you don't really know what sweet honey is until you've taken a spoonful of it, put it in your mouth, and tasted it. Mmm, okay. Now I know. Now I know. It it was an entirely other thing than what I had believed it to be when I put the spoon in my mouth and actually tasted the honey. It's the same with the future promises of God. You can believe in the resurrection, but it's an entirely other different thing to let it comfort you in your life and death. To operationalize it, right? To activate it in your soul and in your heart. That's an entirely different thing. That's tasting the honey. You can believe the Savior is to come. But it's an entirely different thing to buzz with the excitement and love in the here and now in such a way that it causes you to live joyfully and boldly knowing He's coming. You tasted it. You have to operationalize. You have to activate it. 
You can't just say, I believe it. You've got to work it into your soul so that you know. Well, how do you do it? How do you do that? You might think there's this really complex answer with a big word like operationalize it. <laughs> no. It's really through the ordinary, common means of grace. I wish there was some secret formula I could give you, but it's by using his word and prayer and fellowship with other believers and a deepening relationship with Jesus. There's no shortcut to it, but you can taste it. Until the future promises are so real to you that you bury your wife in a foreign land, claiming it for your own while you do it. Because even as this was a deep moment of grief for Abraham, death in this passage was really a reason to hope. Because these faithful patriarchs realized they were sojourners in life and heirs in death. They were sojourners in life and heirs in death. In death, they became heirs of the promise and occupied the promised land. There was hope beyond the grave for them. Hope that was real like sweet honey. I mean, it won't be till the time of Joshua. Hundreds of years later, the descendants of Abraham will truly own and possess the promised land. But by the end of Genesis even, we're going to see that the cave at Machpelah that is said to be under, today it's supposed to be under, it's under a Muslim mosque, I think they say. It's going to become, by the end of Genesis, a grave that speaks volumes. Turn to uh, chapter 49 with me. You're in 23 now. Just flip a few pages to chapter 49 of Genesis. I want you to see what this cave becomes. And we're at 29 to 33, just a few verses. Now, this is Jacob's death time. So Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. So this is Jacob. Jacob was the one who becomes named Israel and has the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. This is, this is hundreds of years later. Not hundreds, but many decades later. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There, he buried, there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. They buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. We know this future land is ours, he says. We know it. And maybe today you believe it, but you don't taste it. These promises. You might be exhausted today, worn out, tired, and someday you will ultimately be exhausted in death. But here is what you need to taste. It's our third point. You might be exhausted in life and death, but God's promises are not. And they never will be exhausted. God's promises are not exhausted. 
in this story or in your life. Verses 19 and 20, she's laid to rest. Sarah's breathed her last, and she is put in this cave and laid to rest. We too have a massive reservoir. You know, there's a massive, massive gathering, group, reservoir of promises to drink from and taste, but you have to taste them. There are so many future promises that we need to make a reality now so we can live well now and die well now. Because even though Abraham bought the tomb and laid Sarah there, his ultimate hope and home was in heaven. Look at Hebrews 11 again. I'm so grateful for this great passage. These all died in faith. That's Sarah too. Not having received things promised. There it is, our first point. But having seen them, there's our second point, from afar, and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, that's this way, make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. And so Abraham lived as a radical man of faith because he was able to actually love this world more, actually, and invest in it more because he knew there was a world to come. He held things loosely, but gave immensely because there was a world to come, a true home that was to come. We invest in the future promise by giving of ourselves now as Abraham did. I want us to close today by thinking of those in our lives who don't know these promises. Maybe that's even you today. Maybe you don't know that a true and better life is available in Jesus. Maybe you don't know that future resurrection and forgiveness is available to you today. Or maybe you do know it today and you haven't tasted it. But if you have tasted these promises, think what life must be like in this world if, you, if all you th- know and think that there is is this world. What's life like for somebody like that? That all that they know and all they think will ever be is what's here right now in front of them. What they're going through. What they're experiencing. What happens tomorrow? What would life be like if that's all there was? Every defeat would feel ultimate, wouldn't it? Every death would feel eternal. Every tragedy would make life more and more hopeless. And every day would just be one more day closer to your inevitable demise and extinction. Now you, you who have tasted who have the promises of an eternal inheritance, a better land, a heavenly country, a heavenly homecoming, and a Savior who's going to come riding a white horse to get you. Couldn't be more fairy tale, but it's true. How can we keep this from those around us? How can we hold on to it if you've tasted it? 
Could this sweet honey of these promises spill through those chain link fences that surround our building to our neighbors? Could it spill out of your mouth to your own neighbors who live in the day today as if all there was? Could it be seen in the way we serve here and give here at Bethany Church by giving of ourselves? Could it be seen on your face and in your actions and in your words where you work? The reason you love, the reason you serve, the reason you give is because you know you're going to receive everything in the future. Because you have a Savior who didn't think the price was too high to secure a resting place for his bride. Pray with me. Christ, we have so much to hope in, so much coming to us that will make this time on earth a blip on the timeline of eternity. And yet we do only see now as in a glass darkly, a dusty image of what's to come. But Lord, we want to taste it more in the here and now. We want to know you more real in the here and now so that we will live well like Abraham and Sarah. And we will die well in faith like Abraham and Sarah. So Jesus, I ask you, let us taste your promises, the ones we have now and the ones that will come. In Christ's name, amen.